Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. Over the line, or throws it, he's in. A backhand on a save by Tony Esposito. Stan Makita was a, a small guy, very cocky in those days. A right hand by Magnuson, and he puts that guy down. Magnuson trying to tear his hair out. NBC Chicago's James Naveau. See Chicago hockey insider Jay Zawaski. Part of Blue Wire Podcast. Came off the boards. He shoots. He's going down to the tape. A game-winning goal. The Hawks live to fight another day. Rolling back, circle and drives. Get it from The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. Chicago's going to be in last place forever. Triple Threat Sports, Fry the Coop, and by the Cincinnati Law Group. Let's drop the puck. Welcome in, Blackhawks fans. This is the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. My name is James Naveau from NBC5. With me, as always, of course, is the one and only Jay Zawaski of WBBM, of Odyssey, of the I'm Fat Podcast. Jay, we've got a ton of stuff to talk about today. I know that oftentimes we'll kind of like make the joke that there's a ton to talk about and it's only, you know, a headliner. To- no, this time <laughs> we mean it, man. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a long one. So get comfortable. Go uh, take off your, uh, I like to call them hard pants, like jeans or, or khakis. Throw on the sweatpants, throw on the gym shorts. Uh, kick back and relax because we're going to talk a lot about the Blackhawks. Second half of the show, we're going to catch up with our buddy Kent Simpson of the Simpson Law Group. He's going to break down everything that happened in the Kyle Beach case and what's coming ahead on the December 20th negotiations with John Doe, too. So stick around for that. But we've got a ton of Hawk stuff to get to. First and foremost, thank you for joining us. We always appreciate it. You can follow us on social media at MadhousePod on Twitter, Madhouse underscore pod on Instagram and Madhouse Hockey Pod on Facebook. I'll get these straight sometimes. By the way, there is a sale at our T Public Shop. I created a new design today using the Bubble Hockey USA Man uh, to get you ready for the World Junior Championships and right in time for sale. So use that link in our bio and you can save at our T Public Shop and any T Public Shopping you have to do. Please use our link because it helps us whether you buy from our shop or not. And we appreciate it always. All right. So, James, where do we want to start here? We've got. Uh, the Hawks' recent play, we've got the covert outbreak uh, during, you know, happening right now and throughout all sports, but especially in hockey. Uh, we've got Marc-Andre Fleury winning his 500th game. 
I will give the floor to you as I got to flap my gums last night for a while. Woof. Well, I think that probably the most appropriate place to start is COVID because while it's not necessarily uh, knocking a bunch of Blackhawks out of commission right now, it is really impacting the rest of the league. The Blackhawks game on Monday against the Calgary Flames, we were originally intending to do a podcast after that game. That game got the axe because of an outbreak with the Flames. The Predators have a boatload of cases, both among their players and among their coaching staff. They're basically, I think, down to their AHL coaching staff right now if they want to play Friday night's game. Did they end up playing tonight? They had a, yeah, they ended up playing tonight against the Colorado Avalanche. So they're clearly going to try to kind of ride this out. But this is really causing a lot of issues throughout the NHL. There are teams playing shorthanded right now. You have a lot of postponed games already happening. And as you alluded to, this is quickly becoming a massive problem in all three of the American sports that are being played right now. And it's becoming an issue in overseas soccer leagues. There are just so many COVID cases going around right now. And it's really kind of impacting the NHL and the Blackhawks knock wood so far seem to have kind of gotten away with uh, not having any new cases yet. Well, it's probably going to come just looking at the way things are going around the country and around sports. We're just seeing it in our communities as well. But you mentioned the Calgary Flames, 18 players, 30 members of the organization have COVID. I mean, it's it is raging out of control. Fortunately, everybody in the NHL, I think, aside from Tyler Bertuzzi, is vaccinated. According so, to ESPN, he is the only NHL player not vaccinated. Right. Uh, and he did miss time on the COVID list, if I'm not mistaken. I think that did happen already for him this season. Um, and he also can't travel to Canada. So cool. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the symptoms won't be bad. The guy should be okay. But regardless, they've got COVID and they can't play. And uh, it, it, I don't, I don't know what the answer is here. And we've got the Olympics looming in China. If an outbreak happens there, the players are going to get stranded there. There's just so much to unpack. And this thing has been such a roller coaster since it really began last March, where you feel a little bit of relief. You feel things easing up a little bit. Then there's another massive spike. And we, you know, it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that after Thanksgiving, now there's a massive spike and, oh yeah, we're nine days from Christmas and I think you probably plan for another one right then. And we have another variant that's starting to make the rounds too. Yeah, um, it's just kind of a daunting thing to look at, and and I don't know what the answer is. These are the days I'm glad I'm not Gary Bettman <laughs> because I don't know what I would do, and I think I'd be very tempted to just pause the league for a while. Well, I know the, the thing that's kind of been floated about in uh, some circles is the idea of pausing the league now for two weeks, kind of let everybody – get back on their feet, et cetera, and then resume the season. And then instead of having the players go overseas, have them reschedule the games during the Olympic break. And I'm sure the IOC would not be thrilled about that if that's the direction that the NHL decided to go. But it also would be, honestly, a, a lower risk uh, endeavor than sending them overseas and potentially getting them stuck in Beijing for several weeks. So I'd imagine that idea has at least been floated in NHL circles, although they insist that there is no plan at this point to stop the season. They want to kind of keep it going. So I think that that, that idea might be a non-starter, but what would you think of that if they decided to go that route? I think that is a very logical conclusion to reach. I think that makes a lot of sense. Of course, 
it's never as simple as just saying so, right? There's all sorts of things that would have to be worked out travel wise and, and that way. Um, so it's not just as simple as like, oh, we're just going to do this. No problem. And we'll pick it up then. Um, there's also sponsor deals that hang in limbo. And, you know, I'm sure there's a bunch of companies that bought in for the Olympic NHL coverage and all this sort of stuff. So it's not as simple as just doing it. Maybe it should be, but it's not. Um, but I, I don't know, man. I really don't know what the answer is. I just hope that they get through it. I hope everybody's okay. Um, and I hope they do what's best for the players and the staffs of the team uh, more than what's better than for their bottom line. I really hope that that's how the decisions are made. I know that's probably pie in the sky thinking, but um, I'm hopeful that they'll sort of look at this thing and say, wait a minute, we've got a severe problem here. And yeah. look, like, you know, what, what does it do for the integrity of the game where the Calgary Flames basic entire roster is on the COVID list? Like that's, I don't know, like, what is the, what's the benefit? Well, of that? I think the idea is that you can't, you can't call off games just because a couple of good players get sidelined. I know the Bulls kind of ran into that problem when they had a couple of really key guys like Demar Derozan and Zach Levine end up on the COVID list, and the NBA was like, "Look, you still have enough guys to play. We're not going to sit here and legislate, you know, based on the quality of your team." But once it gets to a certain level that you literally cannot field or ice a team, right. then, yeah, you obviously have to step in. And to that end, I think there is another option that the league needs to discuss, and I cannot believe they haven't yet, this notion that you can somehow get away with still making teams adhere to the salary cap and forcing them to skate two men down in games – that's preposterous on a number of levels, like competitive balance or whatever. That's a player safety issue, too. Like, you're forcing yeah. guys to play additional minutes, and some of these teams are playing condensed schedules right now. That part of it is insanely silly to me. Yeah, I mean, look, calling up Brett Connolly is not going to suddenly give the Hawks a big advantage over uh, <laughs> over their competition, as we saw when Brett Connolly came up. That's um, fair. But, you know, I, I just think that, yeah, you're right. There needs to be some sort of common sense adjustments made, and the salary cap is a no-brainer. No, like It's not like the Arizona Coyotes are going to call up Pavel Datsuk. That's not going to happen, right? Like, that's It'd be kind of cool if they did. Oh, I'd be all for it. But it's just not – that's just not in the cards, right? you got to let teams do what they can to ice a competitive team. You think uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning will bring back Brent Seabrook? Oh, God. They got to get him from Vancouver where he's coaching for free. Ah, yes, the Vancouver Giants, right? <sighs> yep. Boy, that would be weird, though, to see him in another uniform, wouldn't it? That really would be. <laughs> I think the the most logical solution to me, I would think, would be to borrow an idea that Major League Baseball had, which is the taxi squad, and just have guys travel with the team that are already in the COVID protocols that are isolated from the rest of the team so that if there's a COVID outbreak going around, those guys aren't going to get it. And then don't count those guys against your salary cap if they have to get called up to play in an emergency situation. I just – I cannot – for the life of me, figure out why that wouldn't be something the NHL would want to do. Like, I know it would obviously deplete the AHL rosters to a degree, but at the same time, if you're that serious about continuing your season, taxi squad without cap penalty seems to be a really logical way to do that. Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, what does it do to the, to the AHL? But, you know, you just you, – you, the NHL sends that league some money, each team some money, for any revenue loss for games that get canceled or whatever. 
and you call yeah. it a day. You got to do the right thing here. And if I trust anyone to do the right thing, it's the NHL. I mean, it's not like any it's not like any sports league has the monopoly on doing the right things when it comes to COVID. I mean, hell, you have the NBA discussing the idea of allowing non-symptomatic COVID cases to play, which is a farcical idea as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I but I, I think like at some point that's what's going to happen because the reality is COVID's here forever. Right? That, okay, okay, so it's a realistic thing if you can then have some type of a uh, like a pill for it, like a Tamiflu type oh, yeah. thing, then I can understand Just that. Just to be clear, it, I'm not saying so, now. But so I'm long saying, as there is, but the fact yeah. it's being floated now without that type of treatment available, and look, I know that monoclonal uh, antibodies are doing really well in the testing that they've been doing. I know there's been some successes with remdesivir. I know that there are treatment advances that are being made with COVID. I don't think that we're there yet to justify potentially putting asymptomatic athletes on the field and potentially risking the health of those individuals not only around the teams but also the individuals that are around those players then outside of that I think that once we get to that point that there is kind of that Tamiflu-ish level type of kind of control element to it I think we're going to be a lot better off yeah and we are not there yet but in a year and two years that's I mean that's going to be the way it's going to go is people are going to have COVID like they have the flu and it's just going to be part of our lives from, from from now until forever, right? They're not going to find – it's not like polio. It's, it's right. not going to work that way. This is here. Variants are here. And I think every year we're probably going to have to get a shot or two um, to prevent and, and strengthen our immune systems against it. So, Boy, I hope my body starts reacting better to those shots too. Man. Well, I got to say my 5G is just soaring right now, <laughs> which is great. And my tail is really coming in nicely. I mean, the 12-hour fever itself, like I can deal with that, whatever. But it was the fact that I just had like the tiredness all day the next day. Oh, yeah. It just sucks and I'm a giant baby. I thought I had COVID <laughs> once for an entire year. Turns out I was just really bored. <laughs> what What are you, an SNL character From now? Wayne's World, yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, let's get to some happier stuff here because this is, I mean, that's obviously the big, oh, no doubt around the it's NHL just, right now. It's just, yeah. I just, I feel like everybody feels right now where you just throw your hands up because it's like, at least when this was happening before the vaccine, we were all kind of like, okay, but the vaccine's coming. And then when that happens, we can let our guard down a little bit. Then it came, then we did. Then it's like, well, it's back, but it's not quite the same and quite as deadly, but it's still here. And you still gotta be aware. And at this point, there's really, I am triple vaxxed. My wife is triple vaxxed. My daughter's double vaxxed and she's clear the two weeks. There's really nothing else we can do aside from take calculated risks, right? What is a safe enough thing reasonably to do and kind of go with the mindset of, look, at some point, we're probably all going to get this in one mm-hmm. way or another. We're all going to get this at some point. Or we may have already had it and didn't know it. Yeah, True. That's absolutely true. I mean, because some people have been asymptomatic, and if you're not around anybody, you don't spread it to anybody. Who knows? I don't know. It's just, it's just such a, I don't know. It, it's such a hard thing to figure out, and it's such an unprecedented thing that these leagues have to deal with, and look that that human beings have to deal with. Quite frankly. Um, And like you mentioned, I'm glad I'm not the one that has to make these decisions, but I do think that there is some kind of common sense element to this. And I think that stuff like taxi squads are great short-term solutions. Even if it's a couple guys, right? It doesn't need to be eight or nine guys the whole time, but if if it's two, three, four, 
that you bring with you and maybe they fly in a separate plane or stay in a different part of the hotel or whatever. It's not the most ideal situation, but it is what it is. And you sort of have to cope with, uh, you got to deal with, with the car, play the hand that you were dealt as I get caught in a tornado of cliches. Oh my God. <laughs> Jesus, I should be fired you know, after that. I'm firing you know, myself you know, from my own say, You know what would actually help uh, clear your mind a little bit would be some really spicy food, I think. That would be wonderful. Uh, fry the Coop, frythecoop.com, the best damn Nashville hot chicken on the planet. Uh, you know, I say that every episode. You know why I say that? Because it's true. It is the best damn Nashville hot chicken on the planet. If you are from the Chicagoland area, and I would bet that since you're listening to the podcast about the Blackhawks, you are... Chances are there is a Fry the Coop near you. Oak Lawn, Elmhurst, West Town, Prospect Heights, and Tinley Park. Go to frythecoop.com. Check out their menu. Try the best damn Nashville hot chicken you've ever had. And James, today is the day I need it. Um, it has been, before we get into more Hawk stuff, I know we like to share our personal lives on this podcast sometime. So mm-hmm. get off the train at like 4.55 this, this evening. I start my car, and it sounds like, like, what the hell? What the hell is wrong with my car? So it sounded fine driving to work. You know, I got to work fine, no problems. Park, got in a train, lovely. Start the car up. It sounds like a Sherman tank. So I drive it a couple feet and I hear it dragging. I'm like, great, here we go. So I look and my muffler is detached. So call a, tar- a tow truck. Tow truck shows up. He's like, uh, yeah, your muffler is not broken. Someone stole your catalytic converter. Yep. So that happened today. So tow truck called hope picks me up at the train, go home, call the East Hazel Crest police. They're like, yeah, you got to come to the station, fill out a report. Okay, great. As I'm heading to the station, our house smells like gas. Cause hope had a burner on that. Like didn't ignite. Like yep. it didn't catch. So our house fills with gas. So we got to open all the doors and windows as I'm walking out, this is happening. Then hope calls me as I'm at the police station. She says, um, our carbon monoxide detector just went off. I have to call the fire department. So then the fire department's in our house. This is all James within the span of like 25 minutes. And then the worst part, I go to Culver's for dinner, order a diet root beer and to give me a regular root beer. What the hell? See, I am the victim here. (laughs) Anyway, so that was my night. So yes, some fry the coop would be great to blow my mind right now because I need something. Uh, this this night just needs to end. So I'm happy to be here with you talking hockey and distracting myself from the chaos that was the earlier part of my day. Just sounds sounds delightful. And I'm uh, <laughs> I, I'm happy to say that I didn't have to deal with that kind of stuff today. Uh, once again, Knockwood, very yes. uh, happy about that. But good for you, buddy. I'm glad that everything uh, resolved itself and hopefully the. Uh, financial damage of the catalytic converter element of this isn't going to be too bad. I know that's been a pretty serious issue that's been going around the city and the suburbs in recent weeks. So I, I, I genuinely feel bad for you, man. That sucks. It's all right. There's a lot of people going through much worse crap than that. And I, sure. can, I can deal with it. So, and it's my birthday month. So I have some extra money and whenever birthday you have, month. and whenever you have extra money, the universe finds out. <laughs> then you're screwed yep I, as i think about the uh, money i just dropped on new brakes for my car yes yep the universe knows well don't worry buddy i'm paying you for uh for this month tonight money so you'll have your you'll have your google pay money coming through tonight so there you go hey, irs put on your uh your muffs <laughs> exactly. no that's not true all right let's talk I, about fun stuff can we talk yeah. about fun stuff let's talk about mark andre Fleury's 500th win and you know, kind of 
we've talked about a lot of moments in Hawks history that weren't like the Bondra 500th goal, the Flurry 500th win. There have been others. Um, this one felt a little different. I don't know why. Maybe because he was like the biggest name still on the top of his game as opposed to a guy just playing out the string of his career like Peter Bonder did. Um, this one felt different and felt a little more meaningful. Did it feel that way to you too? Yeah, I'd say that's a really that's a great way to look at it. I think that celebrating guys' uh, accomplishments is always a remarkable thing, but to do so when they're still at kind of the height of their powers is such a unique thing. When Barry Bonds hit his you know seven hundred and you know fifty sixth home run, he still was at a really playing at a really high clip, right? So mm-hmm. you had that kind of celebration. Not and obviously Mark Andre Fleury, a way better guy than Barry Bonds. I what? think we can. Yeah, we can say that. But the idea is that a guy is still performing at an extremely high level, and it's fun to be able to celebrate that instead of a guy who's just kind of limping to the finish. And I think that it really helps that Marc-Andre Fleury has been such a kind of endearing guy to a lot of NHL fan bases, the Washington Capitals being accepted. I forgot how much they kind of hate him after all those Penguins-Capitals rivalries. Yeah, but it's not him they hate. It's the It's the losing they hate. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I, I think that that's, that kind of adds another element to it, too, where it just kind of everybody embraces the guy, which is definitely not the case for a guy like Patrick Waugh when he hit 500 wins. So I think that being able to celebrate a guy still at the top of his game and then a guy who's as well-liked as Marc-Andre Fleury, it really did add kind of an extra air of uh, specialness to all of it. And I was really... I was glad the Montreal crowd reacted the way that they did when they when he did get the 500th win, and I thought the tribute that the Blackhawks put together for him last night was also really, really awesome. It was really fun to see. Yeah, that tribute was great, and and see, I think the quick friendship that him and Kevin Lincoln have struck up is really cool because Lincoln seems to have kind of a similar personality as Flurry, you know, kind of a smiley, happy-go-lucky guy, and it's weird. You got two goalies. Goalies are so like typically aloof and kind of cranky and like kind of lonery like lone wolf types are uh, you but, suggesting ken dryden was aloof and are mercurial you, are you suggesting eddie belfour was a red ass um <laughs> yes i am suggesting those things um but lincoln and flurry are kind of the exceptions and to see them both on a team at the same time is cool i also thought it was nice what his uh wife wrote veronique i think is how you say her name uh wrote for nhl.com about her husband and and him being a dad and him being a player and all that cool stuff and how much they've really uh, fallen in love with Chicago. And that sort of leads me into the next thing here. And after the game and after the podcast, you and I got a lot of Twitter tweets from people saying like, why wouldn't the Hawks just try to resign him? Why not try to bring him back for two or three years and see if he'll end his career as a Hawk. And I found myself thinking about that a lot. And I think as fun as it would be, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, so I'm, I'm curious to see what you say. As fun as it would be to have Marc-Andre Fleury part of things for less money than he's making now, that would have to be the assumption. Um, I don't know if it's the best thing to do because paying guys that are, you know, they're not three years from a cup. They're just not. There's no yeah. clear path for them unless they get the number one overall pick this year or something like that that's going to quickly propel them to the top. Um I just don't see them competing in that short of a time. And then it's just time where you could have been maybe developing a goalie or you could have used that money to pay a young, a younger up and coming player that maybe you have scouted very well. And, or maybe it's the next 
Dominic Kubalik or even better, the next Artemi Panarin that you signed from overseas. I don't know, but I feel like tying up money in a 37-year-old goalie, no matter how good he is, no matter how much we all love him, uh, it just doesn't seem like the most prudent hockey decision. And that's what the Hawks need to start doing is making prudent hockey decisions. Well, hell, if we're going to have that conversation about whether they should re-sign Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane with the kind of the crux of the argument being whether or not they're intending to compete for a Stanley Cup championship in the next three years, I think that it that has to be the conversation starting point for Marc-Andre Fleury. Yes, you can point to his leadership, the fact everybody loves him. Those are all really important things to have in a hockey dressing room. And having a really good goalie, of course, is super helpful if you're, you know, going to be trying to compete for a Stanley Cup. The issue, as you alluded to, is the fact that they're not going to be competing for a Stanley Cup in the next couple of years, barring some kind of just amazing emergence of young talent and a defense solidifying and all that. I guess it depends on who they hire as their new president and their new head coach, but I, I just think that Marc-Andre Fleury is a tremendous guy. I've loved having him with the Blackhawks. I think the conversation already needs to be whether or not he's willing to be traded this season because I don't think that they're going to make the postseason. There's way too many teams they need to jump, and even if they win like 85% of their games, they would still need another team to kind of lose their marbles a bit and really just fall completely out of it because I don't think – I don't think they can jump six teams without at least one or two of those teams just completely falling apart. So I think that the most important thing right now is to determine what he wants to do for the rest of this season. And unless something happens in the off season that really changes the short-term prognosis for this team, I just, I don't see a reason to put that kind of money into Marc-Andre Fleury, and I would rather let him go sign somewhere else if he wants to and try to compete for a championship. It's just a luxury the Blackhawks don't need to try to afford. They traded for him this season because they thought they were going to be competing for a playoff spot and potentially be a dark horse team to you know win a couple of rounds in the playoffs. That's as If that's off the table, and it probably will be off the table next season, I don't think it's a luxury they can afford to have. Remember as well, Seth Jones's new deal kicks in next year, so his 5.4 jumps to 9.5. And then Alex DeBrinkett is scheduled to become a restricted free agent after next season. So, and, but they will also have Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves' $10.5 million deals coming off the books, too, I will point out. Yes, but another wild card you're not considering. Brett Connolly becomes an unrestricted free agent. What are you going to do then? Oh, crap. They I'm gonna... so torn now. <laughs> but here's the other thing, though. Seriously, on the flurry note, I don't think he's going to take a pay cut. I think his next deal will be very close to what he's making now. There's no evidence that he's declining. Aside from the number under his age, you know, category. Yeah, you're, it's exactly like Patrick Kane. Performance will not be the thing that determines whether or not he comes back. Yeah, exactly. So I, I don't think like, oh, well, why don't the Hawks sign him for three years at five million? Okay, great. But he, some other team's going to offer him more than that. Agreed. He's still what a top, I top five goalie. Yeah, he's. I would certainly say there's an argument to be made that he is. Vezina Trophy winner last year. Uh, after a slow start this year, he's bounced back huge as the Hawks' defense has gotten good. So is he. Weird. Funny how that works. Who would have thought? Right. But he's... Well, you know, oh, and, and not good, by the way. Serviceable. Well... There's, there's, 
But the, if you look, they're at, certainly better though. Oh, the t- I thought you were talking about Flurry. Yes, the team is the team is. Yeah, the defense. Sorry. Yes, defense. Yes. No, I would never besmirch Flurry like that. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you, sir? How dare you besmirch the good name? So, look, would the hockey fan in me be happy if the Hawks re-signed Mark Andre Flurry? I'm not gonna lie. Yes. And Hell yeah. It, and I promise you, if they do. I will be the first guy on this podcast convincing myself it was a good thing to do. I guarantee They're totally <laughs> close, guys. They're totally going to make the postseason. Mark Andre Fleury's going to help them do it. You're damn right. I'm going to be right there with you. I man. promise you, I will find a way to spin it for me. Just for me, just so I feel okay about it, because I don't want to be upset about Marc Andre Fleury being a Blackhawk. I love that Marc Andre Fleury is a Blackhawk, and I would love to see it happen for a longer time. But it's just not the prudent thing to do at this point in the Hawks' development, because by the time they're ready to win, he's going to retire. Like there's, yeah. he's not going to play till he's forty-five. Come on, that's just not realistic. He's not Tom Brady, you mean? Well, and he's already won everything there is a win. I don't think. Well, okay, Mart Martin Brodeur had won three Stanley Cups, and he kept playing. I just don't think that his – and look, I don't think Fleury is really chasing any records. That doesn't seem like something he's really no. all about. But I think catching Brodeur is a little bit far-fetched. Even as good as he is, you're, at, you're looking at – you'd have to get, what, like three 30-win seasons in a row? I mean, that's really – that's probably four or five seasons realistically. Yeah. For Flurry to even have that conversation, so I don't know to even be in the same conversation as Uncle Daddy. If any, oh God, if anybody can do it, it's Flurry. I just, I just don't feel that he's motivated to do so. So I think That's he'll, fair. yeah, I think his next deal will be his last. And he'll uh, ride into the sunset as he as one of the best goalies in the history of the game. And that's a pretty I never underestimate the passion for hockey. If he still has it, he can keep playing. And I think he's playing at a high enough level now where I don't feel comfortable assigning an end date to that. I, yeah. I think that he's definitely a guy that can continue playing as long as he wants, it seems like. Yep. No doubt about that. Um, all right. Speaking of someone who's playing well lately, um, I'm willing to say this about Dylan Strom. Are you? <laughs> what what are we saying about Dylan Strom? Let's that start he with should that. be well. We've said this for a while, but that he should be playing every night. Well, I mean, if that's what you're if you're looking for a guy who's going to potentially generate some offensive punch, then yeah, he should be. I mean, look at the roster right now. There's no reason in the world why he shouldn't. And you look at his stats the last uh, couple of weeks, and they're not going to blow you away. He has a goal and two assists in six games this month. He has ten shots on goal. There's stuff that I wish he would do better, but I think that he played well against Washington last night. He definitely was looking like he was going to score a goal against Toronto. I think that they're – but it, it just it goes back to the same thing where you just say there are flashes of this, and then there are times he disappears, and that's why he keeps falling out of favor with coaches, it seems like. Yeah, I, I and I think – we talked about this on the last time we were together. It's like, is he starting to get the message? Is he starting to figure out like, okay, it's not just Jeremy Cowlton. that doesn't like me. Now Derek King is here and he gave me a chance. And now he's soured on me too. Maybe it's me. Maybe I need to, to be a little more motivated, a little more hardworking. Maybe I need to close those gaps between being effective and being a ghost. Right. Yeah. And I think for the first two periods last night, he was one of the better Hawks. And then the third, he sort of, uh, he faded a little bit. He did get rewarded 
with a last minute shift in the third period, it didn't work. They got scored on and he was partially to blame for it. But I think that's Derek King acknowledging, hey, what you did today was better. And we like that. So here's a cookie for you. Right. right. So I don't know. I, I think that, look, he should not be out. I don't think there's any doubt about that. When you look at the other options, no, he, he's got to play. Um, but I just I hope that he can figure it out. And I think, you know, playing him with the guys he's been playing with has been helpful because he does have a chemistry with the Brinkett. He's got a chemistry with Kane and uh, he's doing well on faceoffs, which is something this team definitely needs help with. God, yeah. That last watching, night, though, they were killing, they were anybody, killing the caps on faceoffs. It, that I couldn't believe what Even I was Even Curry Doc won 45%. I, I'm trying to figure out, like, what was it, a full moon incoming? No, like, the Capitals don't have arms. That, that there you go. That's what happened. Yep. They they had them severed off as <laughs> as recompense for repeatedly icing Tom Wilson. Right. That's what that was. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's the only explanation. Jonathan Tapes won 15 to 19 draws last night. That is bonkers. Yeah, man. man. He's he's playing much better. Remember, he had two really good scoring chances uh, last night, and but you're starting to see him kind of look the part again. I don't want to, you know, he's not, he's not 2013 or 2015 or 2010 Jonathan Taves, but yeah, you know, I think getting that monkey off his back was great. Scoring in back-to-back games was great. And now we can sort of start lighting the lamp a lot and he's going to get to 50 points. That's Jay Zawoski's prediction. Where's he at in points right now? Like 20, is he a 20 yet? Is he? No way. No, I don't think he's a 20. 12. Oh, that's it. I was going to say, there's no way he's at 20. He's at 12. 12 and 28 games. And he gets to 50 and 82 games. Well, I mean, first that, of all, wait, if he gets to 82 games, that's a win. I'll it, say it that. It absolutely is. All things considered. I mean, but, I guess technically, yeah, 12 points in 24 games. That's a point every two games. He'd be at 41. And if he cranks it up a little bit, I mean, I guess 50 is not out of the question. All right. Poor boy vet, even though we haven't paid it off yet from last year. Uh, oh, wait, are you going to make me take the 50 points? No, we're going to set it at 45. Um, I'm taking under. Sorry, under. John. Damn it. All right. Well, I'll take the over since you took the under and then <laughs> hopefully we'll offset our poor boys and we can just go eat together. Yeah. We keep talking <laughs> about making plans and then we go to Blackhawks games and don't settle up our poor boy. Right. Bed. And then the world sets on fire. and We can't see people anymore. Duh, stupid world. Stop lighting on fire. Stop lighting on fire world. Hey, if you yeah. were in the world at work and you got set on fire. You know who you got to call. Oh, my God. Our buddy Kent Simpson of the <laughs> Simpson Law Group. He's going to join us next segment. Uh, it's already recorded, so I can tell you ahead of time. It's really good. You're going to want to stick around for that. But after over a decade of prosecuting homicide cases as an assistant Cook County State's attorney, he opened his own firm over 20 years ago, specializing in all forms of personal injury cases. His firm's results speak for themselves with millions recovered for their clients. Since in law group charges no fees unless they win for you. So call for a free consultation, 312-332-2107, or visit sinsinlawgroup.com. Don't go offsides. Go top shelf. Call now. Another thing I want to get to, James, that somehow I failed to mention in last night's postgame. We told you there was a lot of stuff to talk about. And we have not gotten to yet together. Eric Gustafson was a scratch, a healthy scratch. What kind of music should play to uh, accompany this? I'm going like, to pull out the chorus. I got the hip hop air horns. I have several <laughs> samplings. You can choose the one you think fits best. All right. Sure. I like that one. That one's good. 
There, you got all six of them. That's all I, I got. The, uh, that first one was quite lovely. I would go with that. All right, you like that was this one. Yeah, that that that. <laughs> Why are we rooting so hard for that? I don't understand. Well, so this is a phenomenon on the I'm Fat podcast because of. Did you watch the Chicago Sky Rally? I did. Okay, so that DJ was just out of control. <laughs> here, I have it here. I'll play it for you. Now we would like to give a warm welcome to our governor, J.B. Brisker. Let's make some noise. I promise you, that is the first time a reggae horn has ever been played for J.B. Pritzker, ever. The DJ at the Sky Rally was just burying people in air horns. It was phenomenal. <laughs> so that's that's the origin of that on the MFAT podcast, because we love J.B. He's one of us. Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, player. so Gustafson sits out, and Stillman's in, and Caleb Jones is in. And lo and behold, Caleb Jones scores the game-winning goal in overtime. I Look, it could have been anybody. He was just following up a rebound on a three-on-three, which is great. Um, but I don't know. I know we talked about how he's been better. But as they fall more and more out of a playoff spot, someone pointed out on Twitter they were eight points out of a playoff spot when they fired Jeremy Cowton, and now they're ten points out. Um, so they're not gaining yep. any ground despite playing much, much better. It's time I to give. Say, I think they're ten and six since they got rid of Cowleton. Correct. Yep, and they've lost yeah. playoff spot. Uh, they've lost. That's insane. Uh, yeah, so um, it's time to start playing these younger guys. And Gustafson is not your future, so you got to see what you got in Caleb Jones, what you got in Riley Stillman, and some other guys. Yep. Uh, you know, Ian Mitchell's come up and looked good in some stints. Sure. So has. I'm ready for you know Gus to be the number seven and let let the younger guys. So play. what we're actually celebrating is the idea that younger guys are going to get to play. Not that Eric Gustafson specifically was some type of problem or that he, you know, deserves to be cast aside onto the scrap heap because I think he was he's played better than I thought he would. Definitely. I've just pointed out that he's not producing at the level offensively that I would think he would need to to justify the usage that he was getting. Definitely. Yep, no doubt. But I'm still Sorry, just, <laughs> dancing on his grave. It's just man. too fun. It's just too fun to have to, to have six air horns at my fingertips. <laughs> it's just too tempting. Hey, one thing, another thing we know. saw as we talk about the avalanche of uh, Blackhawk stories, Frank Saravelli from dailyfaceoff.com had an interesting piece about the Blackhawks search for leadership and sort of alluded to the fact that Kyle Davidson might just retain his job as GM. And I think that's, great like I think he should get consideration but I don't know how you can reach that conclusion without knowing who your hockey ops guy is because chances are you're not going to hire the hockey ops guy you want if you don't let him hire him or her hire their GM right like yeah who's going to come in and say yeah I'll do this who's a GM cool I'll get to know him no if you're hiring a hockey czar you need to let that person hire the people they want to hire that's that's how I look at it. And, and maybe Kyle Davidson gets interviewed and maybe they decide that's the guy. But I don't know how you can today, December 16th, not knowing who your hockey czar uh, is going to be, how you can make that conclusion that Davidson has a chance. I, I, I think it's just he'll be considered as he should be. But I don't know if yeah. I don't know. I don't know how you can draw that conclusion. But Frank knows more than I do. So I don't know. I mean, does it does it kind of call into uh question the Blackhawks approach, which uh seems to be patience while other teams are 
starting to snap up some leadership talent off the market, looking at the Jim Rutherfords of the world. Yeah, I and I will say this too. I hope the Hawks don't like do a rehash, just bring in someone who's been with 15 other organizations and has some good years and some bad years, and then they get fired. And yeah, I want them to think outside the box. And when you read more in this Sarah I was Belli gonna piece, say Frank's story points to that. Yeah, they're talking to uh they talked to Jed Hoyer uh from the Cubs about things and the assistant uh Seattle, I'm sorry. The Mariners, not about the president's job, though. Just to say, it's not going to be a McDonough situation. No, no, no. But just picking picking the brain is kind of the way um, I would def- describe this. And also, Sierra, Seattle Mariners assistant GM uh, Joe Boringer was talked to. And the connection here with the Cubs is is obvious. Jamie Faulkner's husband Colin is the Cubs' chief commercial officer. Great dude, by the way. Love Colin Faulkner. Um, but that that's sort of where that connection is. So. I like the fact that they're sort of thinking outside the box, talking to different people, talking to people from different leagues and saying, hey, when you've had to do these things before, what have been some of the traits you've looked for? Because, look, I don't think it needs to be a former great player. It doesn't need to be. I don't know. I think looking at thinking outside the box is a, is a good way to do it. And that's what they're doing. Look, it doesn't mean they're not going to hire Eddie Olchek, which a lot of people just assume is going to happen. Um, but they're looking and they're talking to people and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And I, I think it does, it doesn't rule anybody out. I don't think, I think that the logical steps here would be to hire that president of hockey ops and then to decide whether or not Kyle Davidson retains the GM job. It just seems to me that the Blackhawks seem satisfied with the way that he's handling things so far. And they have let him make a few uh, personnel decisions here and there. And it's, I, it's not like they're letting him hand out a bunch of new contracts, of course, but it, I think that there is definitely a feeling within the organization that he is capable of doing the job and has the viewpoint to treat the job very seriously and to perform it well. And I think that they're going to give him every opportunity to earn that responsibility on a full-time basis. And I, I'm not going to say, I wouldn't be mad if they did. So I just think that the ultimate decision should be left to a new hockey czar, a new president of hockey operations. And if he wants to keep Kyle Davidson, I am all for that. Yeah. Just as long as the due diligence is done. um, And and by the way, I'm sorry, he or she, because I do agree with you that I think that they need to look outside of the traditional hockey bubble. And I am certain that there are a lot of qualified candidates who would not be men. I'm just saying. Well, I mean, if you look at the Hawks, you know, front office beyond GM and assistant GM and all that stuff. They've got a lot of women working for the team. Sure. And a lot of roles. So uh, I don't think it would be a huge shock if they, if they went that way. So who knows, man, look, fresh thoughts are never a bad thing and maybe it doesn't work out, but there's no reason in this day and age to eliminate a female candidate simply because she's female. That's ridiculous. Um, Okay. One more thing Uh, I was talking to, a source today about uh, Jeremy Colleton, who uh, obviously was fired by the Hawks a while ago and is just sort of hanging around the Chicagoland area. He is helping coach the Chicago Jets. I think it's the Wee level where his kids are playing. Just sort of offered his services like, hey, I don't want to come in here and and take over, but uh, I'm happy to help. So he's been doing that. And, and from what I'm told, um, he handled everything uh, about the firing with total dignity total class and whether or not you liked Jeremy Cowton as a coach, he seemed like a pretty good dude and a pretty smart dude. And I'm told that there might be a NHL 
leadership role for him in the future. They're looking to expand their scouting to the Pacific Rim, and that's Jeremy Cowton. Uh, Jeremy Cowton is maybe one of the people that could fit the mold of who they're looking for to sort of spearhead that thing. So nothing concrete, but something to keep an eye on uh, as the weeks and months approach. He does have some visa issues because he's here on a work visa and he doesn't have a job. So I'd assume the Cowtons will be headed back to Canada soon before they can get that worked out. But um, just something to keep an eye on. I don't think by any means Jeremy Cowton's hockey career is over, whether it's behind a bench somewhere or in some other role. But um, good to hear that he handled it well and isn't trying to burn any bridges. And, and I do think that uh, he has a long hockey future ahead of him. So I will point out that he does have a job currently, and that yeah. is the assistant coach with uh, Team Canada in the upcoming uh, Spengler Cup in Switzerland. You will be assisting Claude Julien in that tournament. I prefer the Venkman Cup. <laughs> but um, thank you. We're just busting out all the '80s and '90s movie references tonight, buddy. It's been a long day. I I know. <laughs> I, I I heard the story and it, it it sounded like it royally sucks. So I'm letting you go with this. Thank you. I appreciate your love and support as always. All right, so. <laughs> We are now going to turn it over to our interview with Kent Sinson. This is about the Kyle Beach and John Doe 2 uh, lawsuits. So just be warned ahead of time. There is some commentary on sexual assault. There are some, uh, you know, it does. We don't get super detailed at all, but uh, just be warned ahead of time that those terms are thrown around several times in the conversation. So if that's something you're uncomfortable with, feel free to... Uh, catch it next time or whatever you need to do. But I wanted to put that warning out there first. So we're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, you'll hear from Kent Sinson on the Kyle Beach and John Doe 2 lawsuits. That's next on the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. Our guest on the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast is our friend and our law expert and our attorney someday, probably, Kent Sinson of the Sinson Law Group. Joining us to discuss the Kyle Beach settlement and what lies ahead for the Blackhawks with John Doe 2's uh, settlement negotiations starting on December 20th. I want to read a quote here, the joint statement from Rocky Wirtz, Danny Wirtz, and Susan Loggins, who is Kyle Beach's lawyer. This is a joint statement. Quote, the parties are pleased to announce that today's mediation resulted in a confidential settlement between the Blackhawks and Kyle Beach. The Blackhawks hope that the resolution will bring some measure of peace and closure for Mr. Beach. As for the Blackhawks organization, we remain steadfast in our commitment to ensure that going forward, this team will be a beacon for professionalism, respect, and integrity in our community. We remain grateful for the trust and support of the Blackhawks community, and we promise to continue working every day to earn and maintain that trust. So there it is. That came out yesterday, Wednesday, December 15th. Um, so after a whole bunch of hemming and hawing and some um, not so nice things being said in the media, the case is settled. So here to help us uh, dissect everything is Kent Stinson. And James, I'll let you start off with uh, any questions you might have first. Yeah, sure. Uh, first off, Kent, it's always great to uh, talk to you. We've been meaning to have you back on to talk about this case for uh, quite a while now. And then it just so happened that right as we were kind of planning this, the uh, settlement got announced. And I think that it's pretty fair to say that most people who were looking at this case kind of assumed that it would end up getting settled in some way. There was a lot of interest, I would assume, on the part of the Blackhawks not to have this kind of get all the way to trial. Um, is that kind of the assumption that you had about this all along, Kent, is that this thing would get settled long before it kind of entered a courtroom setting? 
Well, well, first of all, it did enter a courtroom setting. I mean, there's two lawsuits. So uh, sometimes these things get headed off even before that. And um, it, it, took a, it took at least the filing of the lawsuits to get the Blackhawks' attention. So, um, and, but I don't think it's, surpri it's surprising necessarily that the case settled now. Um, I don't think the case settled on the facts necessarily. It settled as a public relations uh, question. In other words, they need to maintain a good relationship with their fans and try to regain the, regain the fans' trust. And I think at the end of the day, it really wasn't about Kyle Beach or anything else. It was about the fact that, that, that they are in the business of, of uh, offering a product to the public. And if the public doesn't trust them, no one's going to show up at their games. Um, the other thing I would say too is, um, you know, there were defenses in this case, <laughs> serious defenses, uh, which was the one case had a statute of limitations problem where Kyle Beach just takes way too long to come forward. And the other case had a problem because it was unclear that the other people that had hired him after that had relied on the Blackhawks. And basically, the only thing you had was is that they gave him, they put his name on the Stanley Cup, they gave him a ring, he was at the banner raising ceremony. Uh, those were all things that indicated that the Hawks were supporting uh, the fact that he had his employment with the Hawks. But, you know, that's not a direct kind of, we think this is a good guy, you should hire him type referral. So both of these cases were very defensible. My personal opinion was that these cases settled mainly because if they ever did discovery in this case, and by discovery, I mean, start taking depositions and putting people under oath, there was a high probability that they were going to uncover the decision makers in this. And if right. the decision makers turn out to be Rocky Wirtz and John McDonough, that's a problem for them with the league. In other words, it's not just a problem with the fans. It's a problem for them with the league. And I don't think they can afford to take that chance. Um, in my opinion, there were two sets of people that were primarily at fault here. The decision makers, which the best we can tell, in my opinion, and I have no direct evidence of this, would be Rocky Wirtz and John McDonough. Only probably them, those two people know the answer to that question. And then the other two would be the people that were supposed to lead the investigation that decided not to do it and bury it. And one's the Maria Sartre, who was the head of human resources. And the other one is a name unknown. It was an law, employment lawyer that they brought in to, to show up at the meeting where basically they let Aldridge resign. And right. that guy has all kinds of blood on his hands for a woman, because the bottom line is they were hired just to make sure that none of this ever, ever happened. And just the opposite happened. And, and unlike people like uh, Scott uh, Bowman and unlike Quinville, who are coaches and general managers and don't have any expertise on how you're supposed to handle these situations, that lawyer and Maria Sartre, that's their job. Their job is to do an investigation and handle it right. And, you know, keep in mind, what is John, Qu what is um, uh, Joel Quinville going to go out, interview 145 people the way Jenner and Block did? That's unrealistic. He doesn't know how to do that. He doesn't know all the federal laws and rules that apply in this situation to an investigation. I mean, 
you know, I feel Bowman is smart enough to get and Quinville smart enough to get that sexual assault is awful. And it's even more awful when someone on your staff who's one of your assistant coaches does it to a player. I, I can't begin to say how awful that is. And they, they aren't too dumb to know that. Having said that, it wasn't their job to do the investigation. And that's not their expertise. And that's not their knowledge. And right. so, you know, to me, this the blame is pretty high up here. And I think this case settles not because it's not defensible, because they need to move past this, but also because they are deathly afraid that those four people that I just named as, as being really at fault here, they do not want those people going under oath and talking about what they know and what happened. And, um, you know, this, this investigation had only one goal, and that is to uh, – to protect ownership, <laughs> right? <laughs> and once you start taking depths and you start putting people under oath, you know, all bets are off on that. So those are some of my thoughts on uh, how this was handled. Obviously, we can uh, dig into the findings of that report as we go along here. We didn't get a chance to uh, speak to you in the immediate aftermath of that release, but that really did kind of seemed to kickstart this whole thing and to kind of speed us a little bit toward a settlement in the case. And I think the other thing to kind of piggyback off of something that you said in your last answer was the PR angle and wanting to kind of put pressure on the Blackhawks in the court of public opinion instead of maybe relying on kind of the legal arguments, which you kind of discussed with statute of limitations. Was Kyle Beach's um decision to come forward and reveal himself as John Doe one. Do you think that that also played a significant role in kind of speeding us towards the resolution that we ended up getting? How important was that? Yeah, I think it was critical. I mean, the bottom line is Kyle Beach put a face on this, right? It's no longer something that you just read on a piece of paper. It's actually a human being that's in tears in front of the public yeah. saying, we don't, I don't, my life was forever changed on this. And, you know, I'm sure Kyle Beach's lawyers, in fact, they said it in the press, went into this settlement conference and said, you know what, I would, I was drafted in the exact same spot in the first round as Kopitar. And if I hadn't been sexually assaulted, I would be Kopitar. And I would have made as much money as Kopitar made. And you know what, it's not a ridiculous argument. I mean, you know, the, the bottom line is there's a lot of reasons 11th picks in the first rounds either make it or don't make it. But the bottom line is, who knows? I mean, there is no question that having to uh, bear the burden of a sexual assault, and particularly by somebody in a position of trust or authority, like his coach was, who basically lorded it over his head and said, you know what, if you don't go along with this, I'm gonna not, I'm gonna tell Quinville that you can't play with the, you know, the the, the big boys on this. You know, that's that, that's that's so unfair. And it's it's it, you really can never answer that question of where his career would have gone if he had not had the, the to bear that. So, um, you know, the, 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 that's what happened with the settlement conference. And I think the other case is going to settle. I mean, that doesn't have a statute of limitations defense. So, you know, the, the fact that they could get close to putting Rocky Wurtz and, and John McDonough and this mystery lawyer that was there when that was there with human resources, Maria Satra, those four, you put any of those four under oath and start talking about who knew what the Hawks have to be terrified of that. I would right. be terrified if I was them. 
Well, that other case also has kind of a similar uh, issue to it that you ran into in the Boone and Je- the uh, report, the Jenner and Block report, which is kind of almost like a lack of records that the Blackhawks kept in terms of yeah. what the discussions looked like. There is no, according to the report, there was no specific letter that the Blackhawks sent to anybody that said that Brad Aldrich was a good person to hire. There's no record that they recommended him to anybody. So I think that also may play into that other lawsuit as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's like where I say that the the best argument he has is the fact that they pretty much embraced him by putting his name on the Stanley Cup, by giving him a ring, by putting him at the banner raising ceremony. I mean, all those things, they gave him a day with the cup. All those things are the best arguments that this John Doe 2 has about why the Hawks look like they were still embracing this guy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that there, there's definitely that. You know, the John Doe 2, those case may be worth less um, for the simple fact that um, he he didn't have a career, uh, an NHL career potential, right. right? And that that doesn't mean it doesn't it isn't equally disruptive. But from a financial standpoint, it may be less. I think this I think this case settled for a very large sum of money with Kyle Beach. You know, I mean, I would say I'm going to take a wild guess based on nothing that we're talking 15 to 20 million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think this was because they don't want those guys under oath. They don't want Rocky under oath. They don't want McDonough under oath. They don't want Maria Sartre under oath. And they don't want this lawyer that was sitting in there when Aldridge was allowed to resign under oath talking about who knew what. And the, and, and so that's the cynical side. The other part, which is less cynical, is we got to repair things with our fans. You know, we got to come out of this because the current leadership's different, and we need a fresh start on this. And we're, the only way we're going to get this behind each behind us is to to make good with the guy that was crying on national TV right. and saying, you know what, this has been really disruptive to my life. So, you know, that's how I see what they did and how they made their choices. Well, it's funny, you know, you mentioned the PR angle of things and and. Like as soon as this came out, as soon as Kyle Beach talked, Sam Bowman was let go. Al McIsaac was let go. Yep. They said all the right things. But then we saw throughout the course of the negotiations of the settlement, Hawks lawyers sort of issuing statements like, well, they have a different definition of fair than we do. And I know that's sort of just playing it out in the media, but that there were a couple during that negotiation a couple PR fumbles from the Blackhawks. And it was almost kind of hard to imagine, like, how can they let a statement well, like that get out yes. at all. I know it wasn't them making it. wasn't Danny Wirtz or Rocky saying it, but man, you've got to tell the lawyer, Hey, keep it close to the vest. We're well, going to play I was as actually, good as we can. I was going to ask Kent if he thought that those were PR fumbles, because I know Jay, you and I have kind of differed on the way that we kind of perceive some of the stuff that was coming out. I'm interested to get Kent's take yeah, on that so part. Actually, and then the rest. A, I actually have a, a, a view on that. So I, I think that they, um, the, the here's the tension that was going on on the other side, which is the, the I think there were some people over there that were looking at these lawsuits and saying these are defensible, defensible lawsuits. We can go to court and win. Right. And you're we're lawyers and we're geared up to win and we've got good facts and you guys shouldn't be paying anything. 
because you're not you're not writing checks for 15 or 20 million dollars when I know I can win this case. And then there were other people that said, you know what, we don't want people under oath because we don't know where this investigation might go. And it might go all the way to the top. And we don't want to explain to Batman what's going on. And we need to repair things with the with the with the fans. So therefore, from that perspective, we're just going to get a boatload of money, put it in a truck and ship it over to them as fast as we can. So within the Blackhawks side, you had, you had two opposing views and there you get where they're both coming from, but it's from a completely different perspective. Well, it's funny if the Hawks had taken it to court and won, that would have been a PR disaster for them. Yeah. And I think, I think at some point they realized that, I mean, right. I, I, I think they actually went to the mediation and said, secretly to the mediator who you know is usually pretty confidential we are going to leave this room with a settlement right whatever it takes like like a settlement is going to happen today okay and we're going to try to keep it as low as possible but we are not leaving this room without a settlement right i think that was you know reading between the lines that seems a likely way um, I've, I've worked with, uh, Mike Painter, who was the arbitrator, super good guy, former judge, very experienced. Um, you know, usually what happens is you go over to ADR systems, whereas he works, you know, they put each party in a separate room. So you, you'd have like Rocky and, and the Blackhawks in one room, and then you'd have beach in the other room with his lawyers. And then the, the judge just kind of shuttles back and forth between the rooms. And, uh, what usually starts is the, you know, beach will say, yeah, how much do you want? And we want, you know, $90 million. And then they'll go over to the Blackhawks. Well, what are you going to offer? And we'll, well, we'll offer 3 million. Right. And so now you've got, you've got a parameters, right. And you just play, the judge keeps going back and forth until, you know, either the, it becomes clear that the case can't settle or you agree on a number. And mm-hmm. I've got one coming up next week and I, I do them like, you know, once a month probably. And, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes you go back and forth all day. And uh, the, the what I've always found hilarious is a lot of times the real serious negotiations get down at the end of the day, right? So you trade numbers like for eight hours and then all of a sudden the last half hour, everybody puts their real number on the table. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, but you know, that's, that's the process, but I anticipate that this other case will settle too. I mean, I think the big fear, if I was the Blackhawks right now, frankly, is not these cases. Cause I think they can make them go away. And I think Susan Loggins has said for the right amount of money, they're going to go away. I think the big fear is that more victims come forward, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if that happens, you know, all bets are off. And, you know, Aldridge is a predator, you know, yep. uh, just like Larry Nasser was a predator with all those women gym- gymnasts. So, you know, the Hawks have to be worried about that. But well, I think their their attitude is let, let's deal with what's in front of us, you know? Well, I think and that's- the settlement doesn't change that either. They can they can settle with John Doe two on the twentieth. It's you know seven fifteen in the morning, and five more victims can come out and yeah. say we got a lawsuit too now. And absolutely, I, I, it would almost be it would almost be foolish to think that's not going to happen. Someone's going to see Kyle Beach and John Doe two get settled and say, wait a minute, Brad Aldrich did such and such to me in a locker room or said this or touched me here or whatever. I got I got a case too. And yeah. I mean, it's going to open the floodgates, so, right? I, I, one of the things I should mention is I, I've been hired by a um, person that was, um, he was a player with the like Hawks scrub team, you know, back when beach was on the thing on the uh, plane for the Hawks. 
And um, there were, he saw some things in the locker room where basically Aldridge came on to him mm. and uh, even suggested that he join Aldridge in the shower with two of the other players that were also there. And he was so offended. And in, in November of 2018, he got on the phone and called the FBI up. And, um, you know, the FBI, just like with Larry Nassar, dropped the ball on this thing. They did nothing. They didn't investigate it. And, you know, there were more victims in Michigan than after the fact. And I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the FBI to see their records and basically asked them to explain their failure to investigate this. And, you know, they've been just they've been crickets. They've been silent. So. But, you know, the, the bottom line is, I mean, look at this investigation that, that General Block did. They interviewed 145 witnesses. I mean, that just goes to show you, if you want to roll up your sleeves and really deal with what he did and how many lives he destroyed and how many people he hurt, you really, the scope of this investigation was never going to be small. And it was never going to be something Joel Quinville could do or Stan Bowman could do. I mean, this needed a general block type investigation, and it should have been done in 2010, you know, well, yeah, not, yeah. Not, not, not two weeks ago. And I think, so. you know, throughout this thing, we've sort of said, I think a lot of people assumed it was being handled from players to, you know, like, I know it's really easy to go and condemn. And I think Jonathan Taves, my big thing with him is what he said this year. I think he really dropped the ball with his comments and Patrick Kane to a lesser extent. But back then, the players hear about it. They get wind. And we know how guys are. They don't talk about stuff openly and with detail, right? It's kind of vague, like, oh, yeah, I heard this thing happen. I don't want to talk about it, whatever. They see he's gone. He's no longer with the team. And everyone assumes, like, okay, it must have been handled. Jonathan Taves is going to go investigate that sort of a thing. But for me, the failure of Quenville and Bowman is more of, like, they had an obligation to make sure things were handled correctly. And I think they both, you know, I don't want to speak for them, but I think they both sort of realize that now. But Quenville, again sort of disappointing. Like I never heard of it until this summer and that sort of stuff. Bowman at least was said he at least knew what to say. You know what? I'm not going to say a damn thing. This is an investigation. I'll say what I have to say when I have to say it, but I'm, I'm not saying a word, but I think ultimately the right people were held accountable. I don't know what will ever happen with John McDonough. I don't know what will ever happen with Rocky Wirtz. And you know, it's funny for me that Rocky Wirtz can just kind of plead ignorance too. like, it's either, well, to, uh, to it's either fair, a lie or it's or it's hugely. Fair, I was going to say the report found that he didn't have any knowledge of it. I do, and I know Kent brought up that the whole point of the review was to just kind of show how innocent and pure Rocky was. I know that that obviously whoever funds the thing is probably not going to get the finger pointed at him. But I do want to say that the report indicated Rocky Words did not know about it. Yeah, I mean the Rock report also said it didn't help didn't say how how much they dug though either right like and the other yep. part of it too is it's one thing to say Rocky Wirtz would knew what was going on but I'm sure the number of people he talked to about this was very very small right yeah. so I mean yeah. it would not surprise me if the only person he talked to about this was John McDonough and yeah. the only other two people that I even think there's a remote possibility that he talked to about this was Mary Satro who's the head of human resources and this yep. lawyer that was in yep. there when they decided to let Aldridge resign. But other than those three people, I don't see Rocky talking to anybody about this. So again, you know, you go back to like, 
One, are those people unwilling to say what they know about what Rocky knew? Maybe out of loyalty they are, you know, so maybe there is no direct evidence and there never will be. Um, but the other part of it is, you know, the question is, so how hard did you push there, you know? And I think what the Hawks rightfully could be scared of is those people going under oath at a deposition or a trial, right? I mean, they, they, that becomes a wild card then. It really does. So, so um, kind of on the on the angle of what we talked about earlier about other people potentially and probably coming forward, is it just going to have to be sort of a case-by-case thing? Are the Hawks protected at all? from settling there's they're not really they're just sort of no, out there dangling in the wind right yeah no so they they have the normal defenses of statute of limitations um if there ever was any other victims out there that were under 18 when this happened though you know they don't have a statute of limitation problems because uh, they they basically after the priest pedophile case has changed the law and basically gave those people a lot lot more time to come forward but you know i mean anybody that's over 18 when this happened which, you know, those get into the Kyle Beach type situations. And, you know, from a technical standpoint, it's, it's really hard to see a way around the statute of limitations. Um, But, you know, that doesn't mean they don't file a lawsuit. And, you know, the other thing that's kind of interesting about this settlement is the fact that they, you know, you have to pay for confidentiality, right? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you have to pay taxes on it. That's, that's the old Dennis Rodman case when he kicked the cameraman on the next to the the court. And what happened there was, is that there was an IRS case talking about, they made it confidential. And the question was, does that confidentiality become a taxable event? And whereas a personal injury settlement is not a confidentiality clause is, so the, the, the agreement would actually have to assign a specific value to confidentiality. Um, but I don't know. I mean, maybe the Hawks didn't, I mean, by not making it confidential, it might show that they're generous to Kyle Beach and trying to do the right thing. Uh, on the other hand, they might encourage any victim that's out there and not sure whether they want to come forward to that was the first hire me, me so I can sue the Blackhawks on their behalf. So you know, I mean, it just kind of depends on, you know, what people are. But, you know, it took a lot for Kyle Beach to, to get to the point where he wanted to even contact a lawyer. And I mean, you when you read the General Black report, one of the things that just comes off the page at you is how of a, uh, how much he was bothered by this, but how he was reluctant to come forward. Yeah. Right. And how he was and and. You know, you were talking a little bit about how the players didn't step up on this. And, you know, one of the parts of this is the fact that this these that this is man, boy, sex, that this is gay sex. Yep. You know, I, I mean, let, let's not kid ourselves that in the culture of ice hockey or football, you know, the acceptance of uh, homosexual uh, behavior is not is maybe as great as it is in other aspects of society. And, you know, I mean, that's disappointing. I hope our players, I hope people like Patrick Kane and, and, you know, leaders, um, um, Jonathan Taves, I, you know, those guys need to step up and, and, and get with the times here on that. But, you know, it's, it's just a slow road, you know? And I think, I think that's one of the, the, the reasons that this, the beach was reluctant, right? right? You know, they were afraid they were going to turn it back on him. And based on some of the jeers that apparently got made at practices, that's yeah. exactly what happened. His fears came true. 
And, um, you know, now he's trying to bounce from team to team and make it into the league after being the 11th pick in the first round. It's a real tough road. It's a tough road. Well, and let's remember, too, you know, Kyle Beach, when he did not pan out, air quotes, now in hindsight, that's kind of a bad thing to say, but that's, that's how people looked at it. He was, uh, remember, the word was always that he was aloof and he was not a good teammate and he was uh, edgy or surly or whatever. It's funny how now we look back on things with a, through a different lens and think, wait a minute, these were all excuses people were using to keep him off the ice. And it's, uh, you know, when you look at that dude, that is a hockey player, man. He, he's big. And Kopitar is such a good comparison. And who knows? I, I'm not saying he would have, but Kopitar is a borderline Hall of Fame player, right? Let's not right put, now. let's Absolutely. not give that to Kyle Beach right away. But in terms of size and, and skill set, he was right there. And uh, it's just, I hope that what he got was fair and I hope it does help him move on. Uh, it's just, and, and look, I, there is no silver lining to a sexual assault. Of course not. But every time a light gets shined on situations like this, I feel like there is incremental improvement, right? Like uh, maybe 10% of hockey players now look at things differently than they did last summer. And that's, if there's something to, to be gained from it, I guess that's it. And hopefully the league and the Hawks can learn from this and and improve and, and just make a better yeah, I mean, place so, to be. So the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court in 1998, basically decided some cases. And one of the things that they said was, is that sexual harassment is the same as sexual assault. And then the other thing they said is there was this big discussion about, well, can a team or an employer be responsible when uh, like a, a boss sexually harasses somebody that's under them, right? And, you know, in those cases, there was, you know, a lifeguard situation where, you know, one of the one of the lifeguards was being harassed by her boss. And then there was another one where an executive was sexually harassing some woman that worked for him. And basically what they said is, is, you know, the employers off the hook, but only only if they put in their employee handbook that if you have this kind of issue, you come to human resources, we'll investigate the crap out of it. We will protect you against retaliation. And then we will make whatever disciplinary decisions we make, we, we need to make to protect you and, and do the right thing, right? And if we need to fire people, we'll fire them. And if somebody did something wrong, we're going to going to absolutely address it. Okay. And so all employers, including the Blackhawks, ran out and changed their employee handbooks to have just that provision. Okay. And they put the head of human resources in charge of enforcing it. And Kyle Beach then a few years later comes forward, 10 years later, comes forward and says, hey, I got a problem. And what do they do? They bury it. They don't even follow their own policy. And it's inexcusable. It's yep. complete. There's no defense for it. And basically the general and block report ends with just that line, which is, Hey, these guys can't even follow their own policy. And what the United States Supreme court said is when you don't follow your own policy, you're not protected. Okay. Now you're still protected by statute of limitations, but you're not protected. Like you didn't like, you're not responsible for what Aldridge did. So, um, you know, in that respect, that's kind of how we got here, but you know, people don't always look at this case as an employment case, but in fact, Beach was an employee and so was Aldridge and Aldridge technically was his boss because he's a coach and Beach is not. Yeah. So right. that's what you're looking at. These were not equal power situations. They were not. 
And, and Aldridge, let, from, according to the General Black Report, Aldridge leveraged that power by placing the fear of God into, into Beach if he didn't do what he said. Right, and right. that's really scary. Uh, you kind of you've alluded to the uh, cultural challenges that are involved here with just how ingrained those kind of dynamics are in the NHL and in the sport of hockey. And you mentioned the players not speaking out and not doing the right things here. And it just kind of begs the question for me. I know that the financial terms of this deal are confidential, but so are any other terms that would have potentially been included in this type of a settlement. Is it common for these types of settlements to also involve kind of um, uh, requiring next steps from the Blackhawks to uh, introduce programs, introduce new uh, rules for the team? Is that the kind of thing that would be uh, common in a settlement like this? Or is that something that they would kind of say, we'll talk about that stuff later. You know, we just want to make sure that we get the main parts of this deal done. So here's what I'd say about that. Um, if, if a defendant's willing to pay enough money, <laughs> they can basically have no conditions on them other than that. Right. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and it was, it's my sense that the Hawks were motivated that way. In other words, could, could Beach say, hey, listen, I want a public apology as part of, as part of my settlement? And I want you to go forward and tell everybody that you screwed up and that I'm a good guy. Yeah, he could set up whatever terms he wanted that way. And, you know, maybe there was some of that, but the or maybe Beach wanted confidentiality on the number two. He didn't want all his neighbors knowing how much money he got. Right. I, I don't know the answer to that, but there's really no limitations. There might be some moral limitations on uh, what you put in a settlement and what you don't put in a settlement. But you know, a settlement's a settlement. And, you know, as long as the parties agree and it's not illegal, there's really no, no rule against it. Like I say, usually whoever's paying the money wants a lot of control over the terms, right? Right. You know, and, uh, and the more money they pay, the more control they get. Um, do you remember when uh, the, they had that, that leak in uh, the Gulf of Mexico that uh, just kept leaking oil and yeah. do it? And then they had the rig explode. And, and apparently they knew that uh, BP knew that that was going to happen. And that, so some of the victims' families in that case, they couldn't bring their loved ones back, but they just wanted to hold BP out to, you know, for public shame, right? So they basically went into the settlement conference in those cases and said, I don't care about the money. I want you guys to go out there and tell everybody all the evil things you did, right? And I'm not agreeing to any confidentiality ever, <laughs> you know, because I want to go to trial and show everybody what you did, right? Now, right. that's that's a different kind of victim, right? You know, um, a lot of victims will say, you want to throw an extra $10 million in? Well, we could work on confidentiality, you know? So, you know, there's not a right answer on that. Um, but yeah, these are, I, like I said, I, I think the Hawks were really motivated. They want to get beyond this and they do not want people under oath that might uh, move up the food chain as far as who knew what. Well, Ken, before we wrap up, uh, Jan I'm sorry, December 20th is the date for the settlement negotiations with John Doe 2. Uh, safe to assume this will happen a little more quickly than the Kyle Beach uh, negotiations just because of probably not as much money involved, not as complicated, not a public figure, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, let me put it this way. Uh, the Hawks showed the lawyer that represents Beach that they're serious about making these go away. 
right? And I think that because Beach had this potential big payday with a career in the NHL, he was the harder case to settle off the bat. And the other problem that the Hawks have on this other case is there's no statute of limitations defense. And that would make me nervous if I was the Hawks. I think they're going to reach a uh, I think in half the time it took to settle the beach case, they're going to settle the other case, um, you know, and, you know, probably for substantially less money too. But, you know, again, it's, it's because it's harder to quantify this other guy's damages uh, because, you know, he didn't, he didn't have such a lucrative potential career. Um, that doesn't mean it's not more or equally harmful to his personal existence for the rest of his life. So, um, yeah, that's, we'll have to see. I, I have high expectations that this, that case will settle next week though. Yeah. I think that's very likely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the current people that are running the Blackhawks right now, I mean, they, they can't help but remind us every so often how, how short a period they've been there. Yeah. Namely, they weren't there when any of this happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and two, how they want to like do the right thing and regain the fans trust. And I, I commend them for that. I mean, I, you know, I mean, that doesn't, you know, it's not a clean slate, but it's a good start, you know? Right. That was going to be my final question here is kind of, where can the Hawks go from here in terms of PR? I, I obviously donating to sexual assault, you know, charities or shelters or whatever. Uh, what do you see the Hawks doing from here on out publicly to sort of clean up the reputation and make people feel better? Cause I think we've already seen a little bit as we predicted early on, like, eh, the news cycle will move on and people will be singing Chelsea dagger again in no time. Um, but do you see any sort of long-term things they can do I, um, to, I do to, help, to make people feel better. Yeah, I do. Well, first of all, you know, um, I watched, I was at fifth third bank last week and watching my niece play. Uh, she's uh, one of the better high school hockey players in the nation. And you know what, this is a sport that women and girls are starting to love. Yep. You know what? And I'll tell you what, if there's ever a, a, a segment of society that, that is sensitive to sexual assault being having to stop, it's women and girls, right? And, you know, if the Hawks are going to embrace those people and make them fans and lifelong fans, they need to get on, you know, get with the program here. And, you know, I mean, you know, I saw Chelios's daughter is now one of the announcers for the Hawks, but I mean, they need to reach out and try to say to they need to be the good guys for people like my niece who she can look to that, that organization and say, you know what, I'm happy to be associated with them and I'm happy to be a fan. So I think that's one thing they need to do. The other thing they need to do is, you know, it doesn't make any sense to have in your handbook that if anybody comes forward with a sexual assault, that you're going to take it seriously, investigate the hell out of it, only to like play this game of let's see if we can hide the ball once somebody comes forward. Um, You know, they just need to recognize, and I don't know what the answer to that is other than, um, I mean, that lawyer that's in the room when Walters is allowed to resign, he or she knew better. And they won't even tell us that person's name. They won't tell you what law firm they work for. They don't tell you anything about them. I mean, they absolutely knew better. Um, so, you know, I mean, one thing is they got to like get a human resources department that's for real. And, you know, I mean, if, if, if I'm that person, they not only should have done an investigation right off the bat, but they probably should have hired an outside agency to do it, mm-hmm. you know? 
And uh, in other words, you know, this investigating yourself stuff is just for the birds. You know, the Catholic Church did it. It didn't work out. You know, when police <laughs> yeah. officers shoot somebody, they investigate themselves to see whether they did anything wrong. I mean, I think as a society, we've had enough of people investigating themselves and deciding they did nothing wrong. I mean, it just doesn't work. And so the Hawks need to, like, try to create that kind of uh, objective kind of when they get themselves in this situation, we're going to bring in a fresh set of eyes that doesn't have a, 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 um, a horse in the race. So, you know, I would like to see them do that. Well, but, it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if you saw the news. Uh, Frank Saravelli wrote, uh, I think it was yesterday that the Hawks have reached out to Jed Hoyer with the Cubs. Uh, obvious connection there with Colin Faulkner, Jamie Faulkner's husband, uh, is up as a higher up at the Cubs and reaching out to the leadership of the Seattle Mariners and some other teams to kind of fill this role uh, in the hockey ops department and part of organizationally. So that to me is encouraging as they're looking at big, successful organizations that have, uh, I don't want to say squeaky clean because I don't think any organization is squeaky clean, but the Cubs from when Theo Epstein took over till now from a you know front office standpoint has been pretty top notch. So uh, it's good to see them reaching out and trying to pick the brains of bigger, stronger, probably a little more advanced organizations than yeah, they are you know, right now. What, what, one thing they could do is, you know, the league could step in and say, hey, listen, if you've got a complaint like this, you got to talk to us, you know, <laughs> you know, like instead of waiting a decade on this thing, um, you know, again, the more you, outside eyes you can get on it, the less problems you have in the long run. And it's better for everybody. It's better. It's it would be better for the ownership of the Blackhawks if they had a rule in the league that that, that McDonough or Bowman had to go tell Batman back in 2010, you know, then they could have dealt with it, you know, right. Instead, they try to like shove this under the carpet. And, you know, it's one thing to shove it under the carpet for two weeks while you're trying to win the Stanley Cup. It's quite another thing to shove it under the carpet for a decade, you know, and then have Aldridge resign and sign something that says that he's not even allowed to come back and talk to the Blackhawks about what happened to him years later. I mean, I mean, the morally delinquent choice there that they made with him on his way out the door is scary and it just shows that they were just trying to like not face this not confront this not give it the investigation that it deserved and not protect the people that were harmed by it but they were trying to maintain this false image that somehow nothing bad ever happens associated with the Blackhawks and you know there's no organization in the world that that doesn't make employment mistakes sometime in their life. It's sure. not the end of the world. You just basically learn from your mistakes and correct them rather than spend a decade trying to hide from everybody that it happened. So in that respect, it's real disappointing. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, we need some outside eyes on this, you know? I mean, you know, with Larry Nasser, they went to the FBI and that didn't work. All those women came forward and didn't work, you know? But eventually when you got a predator out there, there's going to be just too much complaints. And, you know, eventually this is all going to come to light. Yeah. Kent, thank you so much for your time. You've been hugely invaluable during this entire process. And uh, I, I hate to say like, hopefully we don't need you anytime soon. Cause that means <laughs> the Hawks have not done anything stupid or reckless or criminal. Um, but you're, it you're also right. means we haven't done anything stupid, <laughs> reckless or criminal. I haven't fallen off a, <laughs> fallen off a ladder at work or anything. So that's yeah. good. But, uh, can't, we always appreciate the time, man. Thank you so much for yeah. being so generous. 40 minutes. Wow. It kept you way longer than we planned so, on. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, 
the Hawks scored three goals in 34 seconds last night. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, I asked three good I'm questions get you in back 40 minutes. To explain exactly how that can happen and when we can see that happen again, because I would like to see that soon. Sounds good to us, man, for sure. Ken Sinson, thanks so much for your time. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. Thanks to our guest, Kent Sinson of the Sinson Law Group. Go to SinsonLawGroup.com or call 312-332-2107 for a free consultation. Thanks for sticking with us. I know this was a long episode, but hopefully we covered everything we need to. And we're never far away. The Hawks have a bunch of games coming up, uh, barring a massive COVID outbreak somewhere else in the league. So you know we'll be here soon. So thanks for joining us. We always appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast was brought to you by Fry the Coop, Triple Threat Sports, and by the Sids In-Law Group. I'm Amira Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.